Good morning, church. If you got a Bible, let's turn to Romans chapter 14. Uh, we are in uh, for a sweet time in God's Word this morning, a passage. I believe that we as a church have um, been able to live out by God's grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit and pray that we would continue to be able to do so in the, the days, the weeks, the months, the years ahead. This is Romans chapter 14. I'm going to be reading verse 1 through verse 12. Romans 14, verse 1, the Word of the Lord says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord." And gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Would you pray with me? as we seek the Lord through His Word, by His Spirit. Father, thank You for passages like this that remind us of uh, the core doctrines of the truth, that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Thank You for the challenge and encouragement that we have in a passage like this to hold fast to those things and to hold more loosely to other things. Father, I pray that we would be, as described in this passage, a welcoming church. Uh, a church that doesn't welcome any belief about God, any belief about faith and practice, um, but Lord, one who is welcoming uh, to those um, who have put their faith in Jesus and are aiming to live that out faithfully in accordance with your word. Uh, 
Lord, help us as we struggle in the days ahead to be this church. We ask and pray in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. And amen. Uh, well, uh, I have been uh, thoughtful about this passage and thoughtful about this sermon uh, throughout this week, thinking that uh, it, it is a timely passage for uh, our church. It's a timely passage for uh, our day and age as, as a culture, thinking about what it means to welcome those who have different opinions than we do, uh, especially about how that happens uh, in the church. Uh, and I know uh, I am not John Piper. You did not join this church to hear Charles Spurgeon-like uh, messages every Sunday or even your favorite reformer um, sermons that we can still read to this day. Uh, yet I was uh, encouraged and challenged to um, keep this mindset in my preaching and in our church is a, uh, a quote from Francis Grimke, who was an African-American freed slave who pastored a Presbyterian church in Washington, D.C., and I think I can agree with him. Uh, he says, I have never had any desire to preach what are called great sermons, sermons which display learning or ability and which are relished particularly by highly educated members of the congregation. But I have desi desired and sought to preach helpful sermons, sermons that meet the real needs of the human heart in the midst of life's trials and struggles and temptations and sorrows. The function of the pulpit is not to entertain, to amuse, to satisfy an idle curiosity. It is to instruct, to inspire, to fire the heart and mind, to implant within us noble desires and ambitions, and above all, to keep ever before men the one supreme figure in history, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to beget within them a passion for Him and for a Christly life. That's, that was Francis Grimke's hope. That is my hope. I, I know that not many more than you are going to hear this message, but I pray that this message is encouraging for us as a church in these days and yet is challenging for us to, to be able to enjoy what we've been able to enjoy in the months and the years uh, in, in the past. Uh, many of you have been a part of our membership class. And if you haven't and you are in the future, you will hear us um, teaching through some of the beliefs of our church. And we've categorized those beliefs in what we've called central beliefs, confessional beliefs, and charitable beliefs. Those central core beliefs being those truths that are essential to salvation, essential to uh, Christian, what it means to be a Christian, those things that uh, have been uh, attributed to historic Christianity since the first century. Um, those things of, of 
the Apostles' Creed of who God is, who Jesus is, and who the Holy Spirit is. Um, Those things of salvation, the the five solas teaches us uh, that we, we are saved by, as we just sung, by grace alone, through faith alone. Uh, in accordance with the Scripture uh, alone, uh, for the glory of God alone. Those are the, uh, the central truths that we as a church have held fast to. But we've also identified certain confessional truths that we as a church hold fast to. And you can go up and down the streets of Arlington and Mansfield and just by the names of churches find and realize that they have different confessional beliefs. Uh, Since we, though it's not in the name of our church, uh, the Fields Church is a Baptist church. And so we have certain um, Baptistic um, confessions that we hold fast to, uh, that we believe in believer's baptism, um, that we believe in the uh, autonomy of each individual local church, that we're not ran by a hierarchical structure uh, of churches, uh, and things like that. Uh, and so we have certain confessional beliefs that we uh, can read about in uh, our statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message, or uh, an older, uh, the older original to that, which was the New Hampshire Confession. Um, but we've also, the, and, and even inside of that, there's certain distinctives that um, as a part of our confession whom we've identified with that have certain beliefs regarding um, our practice of our faith, um, our understanding of marriage, our understanding of the Word of God, our understanding of identity and sexuality, uh, our, many of these things that have come up in, in, in our day and age uh, and, and prevalent even especially in, in this month being celebrated and affirmed, we have said that uh, what we believe in accordance with God's Word. But then there's also another set of beliefs that we have called charitable beliefs. Uh, those would be things um, that are not essential to our salvation, um, and yet uh, they're things that probably even people in and amongst our congregation have different opinions on. And they read through God's Word and and have done their best, you've done your best to believe uh, this or that about certain, um, certain things and, and in certain situations uh, gar- about God's Word. These are uh, things in regards to maybe end times, um, the second coming of Christ, or maybe things regarding Christian freedom and Christian liberty and, and how you're to live. And it's in regards to that third category that we are applying this Scripture today. And I, need, I needed to say that to make that clear, that you're not hearing me say we need to be welcoming to all, even if they disagree with us on these central truths. We need to welcome anybody, even those who think Jesus is not the Son of God. We ought to be welcoming to them. Uh, please hear me, I'm not saying that these truths are applied to that category. And for us as a church, we're, we're not applying those things even to this second category. For we as a church have identified even more specific things on top of those central things that we have said we are in agreement in regards to these things. 
we hold fast these truths, but it's these charitable um, truths, these charitable applications to God's Word that there seem to be Christian freedom or there seem to be um, uh, a, a wide understanding of uh, application to God's Word there. Uh, previously, the previous two chapters in Romans, up to this point, Paul's been really laying out some practical details of what it looks like to lay down your life as a living sacrifice, uh, one in which is holy and pleasing to God, which would be our spiritual act of worship. And he would go on to say that we're not to be conformed by the world, but we're to be transformed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God, along with the people of God, through the renewing of our mind that we might um, look like Christ. And he's begun to apply what that looks like in several different areas uh, of influence. Our own gifts in the church, marks of a, a true Christian, what it means to submit to authorities in the world, uh, what it means to, lastly, speaking about what it looks like to love uh, as a fulfillment of the law, what it looks like to live as we cast off darkness and put on light. Well, Paul is going to, um, where he's been very specific and, and included many different commands in the past two chapters that it looks like this to live as a Christian and this and not like this, he's now beginning to enter into the kind of murky waters of Christianity and some of those things that are a little bit less clear and are determined um, by each individual's own conscience and own freedom. And, and as he kind of wades into those murky waters, he's welcoming us into those murky waters and saying, it's okay. It's okay that we disagree on, on some, of, some of these things. Not the central things, not even for us as a church, the confessional things, but those other things. And, and we've called them charitable beliefs because we want to uh, embody what, uh, th that short, sweet statement that came out of the Reformation, that in the essentials, we would have unity. In the non-essentials, then, there might be diversity. But in all things, we ought to have charity. And this is what our world is lacking, uh, especially those who call themselves Christians, Christ followers in our day and age. They, uh, they, are, they are lacking. And sometimes we are lacking the charity in those non-essentials. Uh, we are lacking love and kindness. We are lacking um, patience with one another. And it's, it's in that area that I hope that we would be able to, to press into um, these things. Um, this is a passage that is important to the Apostle Paul for the sake of the unity uh, of the church. Um, it's important, um, and, and he brings out specific issues in this. Uh, and, and yet what he ultimately points us to can be seen in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, 
This is what we're aiming for. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And this is what we need to, to focus on, these things. Now, I, will, I just want to also say that we as a church, I feel like as one of your pastors, can say that we've experienced such great peace and joy in the Holy Spirit in the midst of a very divisive few years. Um, some of you have echoed that in and amidst our church. And what, uh, first and foremost, all thanks and praise be to God. Uh, what a blessing it has been. Um, because I had lunch this week with a like-minded pastor uh, whose church just split almost down the middle um, regarding all the things that have been divisive the past two years. Um, it wasn't because they didn't preach expositionally through God's Word. It wasn't because they didn't have um, elders who took God's Word seriously and aimed to live it out uh, among their members and to leading them to do so. What happened was, as some of these secondary, non-essential issues became primary in their church. And those who held that said that if you don't hold to these views in these secondary non-essentials, we don't want to be a part of you any longer. Or maybe even you're not a Christian if you, can't, if you don't believe this, that, or the other. And it split the church right down the middle. And you could see the heartache of this pastor who had given 23 years of his life to a church and another brother come in and begin to divide the church. Uh, Lord, let that not be of us. Let us be a church that doesn't allow secondary issues to trump primary issues of the gospel and salvation uh, for the sake of, of His name. And, and thanks be to God, we've experienced that uh, in this church. And I hope we can apply these truths well to our lives that we might continue to apply them to our lives, but also that we might, others in our city, might be able to experience them as well. Uh, but this morning, let's look at this passage together. There's really three sections that uh, I'd encourage you to take notes on regarding uh, this sermon entitled Unity, Diversity, and Charity. And the first one comes in verses 1 through 4, and it's this, that we ought to welcome those whom God has welcomed. Welcome those whom God has welcomed. In verse 1, Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, you hear the command there, welcome him. It's a present tense command, one that is not just a one-time welcoming of an individual, but a regular continuing to welcome and to uh, extend the hand of fellowship and to uh, come alongside other brothers and sisters who are, as Paul describes, weak in the faith. Now, you may hear that and all of a sudden think, well, yeah, they're pro he's probably talking about other people, not me. Because, I, I mean, that, that doesn't describe me weak in the faith. And I'll just be honest with you. The more I began to apply this Scripture to my life this week and began to think about some of my opinions on secondary matters, I realized, wow, I am the weaker brother. You have a very weak pastor. 
if uh, weak in the faith is as I, I think he's explaining here. Uh, please hear me. This doesn't mean that those who are described by Paul as weak in the faith are uh, weak in that they don't have the strength to stand up to temptation. It doesn't mean that they're weak in that they don't have self-control. In fact, they are actually able to stand up to temptation and self-control maybe better than those who are strong in their faith. What Paul is applying this, this title to, weak in the faith, is, is their conscience. Um, there are certain individuals in the church in Rome whose conscience convicted them to not live in such a way that they were free to live as Christians. Uh, we read the passage together in verses 1 through 4. Paul brings up one of the areas of conscience um, that he'll address, and I'll mention it later, but it's that of eating. Um, those who were weaker in the faith, their conscience did not free them up did not allow them, they didn't feel the freedom to um, eat meat. Meat that um, might be unclean in regards to the Old Testament laws of Judaism, or meat that might have been offered to pagan idols in Rome. They didn't feel their conscience allowed them to do that, and so they just didn't eat any meat at all. Kind of like if you've been in our Bible reading plan, we're reading through the book of Daniel, kind of like Daniel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, restricted themselves and say, we're just going to only eat vegetables uh, because we trust that the Lord can strengthen us. We don't want to eat meat that's potentially been offered to uh, pagan idols or maybe potentially unclean meat. Uh, and so when you hear weakened faith, don't think it's derogatory. Uh, it's those whose conscience, maybe because of their Old Testament um, Jewish history, maybe because of sinful practices, uh, sinful habits in their own life, they don't want to allow themselves that freedom for fear that they would go in the wrong direction. And so their conscience was seared and they held fast to that. So they're weak in the faith. And Paul is saying, um, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So Paul is highlighting here that there are um, differences of opinion in how you live the Christian life in, in certain areas, and that there is Christian freedom in those areas. And Paul is going to bring up several in their day and age, and I'll try to mention several that we may have in our day and age. But like I said earlier, um, those of us who have certain convictions that might be strong, uh, certain strong convictions uh, may make us weaker in the faith because we don't allow ourselves to uh, uh, live out the Christian freedom in, in certain ways. Um, Paul contrast weak with the strong who do feel a sense of Christian freedom in some of those areas. And Paul actually, if you read ahead, you, you can realize that Paul includes himself among the strong. If you look in chapter 15, verse 1, Paul says, we who are strong. So he includes himself in that group. He says we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
Paul's goal in these chapters, and they're going to have a consistent theme for the next several weeks, is unity, is harmony, is peace among brothers and sisters who may choose to live in areas of Christian freedom differently than one another. Uh, the goal here is we could see even more clearly in Romans chapter 15, verse 7. This is what Paul has in mind that we might have in our minds for the next few weeks. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. Look at it in, in, in your copy of God's Word. It says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus, with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, therefore, what's the word? Welcome. Another command. Therefore, welcome one another. Why? As Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In our passage, in verses 1 through 4, and later on in, in verse 3, Paul gives us one of the reasons why we're to welcome other brothers and sisters who have different opinions on these secondary and tertiary, uh, tertiary areas of Christian freedom. And, and it's because God has welcomed them in to His family. Why wouldn't we welcome others with difference of opinions into our local church family as well. Christ Jesus, as we just read in Romans chapter 15, verse 7, has welcomed us as brothers and sisters into the family of God with God as our Father. Why would we not welcome others who have a different opinion and how we carry out our everyday Christian lives with those who, who differ from us? We are to welcome them. We, we are to receive them, take them as our companion, come alongside them in home and in fellowship. The way this is practically lived out is seen in one of the other places of God's Word where this word welcome is used. It's used in Acts chapter 18, verse 26, and it's used of Aquila and Priscilla in their actions towards another brother named Apollos. Apollos was a, a younger Christian in the faith, gifted in speaking, was able to speak the Word of God uh, unlike Francis Grimke and your own pastor eloquently using uh, great words uh, to be able to describe the faith. And yet it says that he taught the Word of God accurately, but he only knew the baptism of John the Baptist. He had not been baptizing individuals in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He didn't know the baptism of Jesus. And so it says that Aquila and Priscilla, upon hearing his preaching, it said they lovingly welcomed him. They didn't get online and blast him because he didn't have the right view of baptism. They didn't write you know, all these public letters to denounce him as a heretic and this, that, or the other. They welcomed him. Uh, your English ESV may say that he took him alongside, one-on-one, -on -one, and explained the way of God more accurately to him. 
Christian church, we need more of that in our day and age. We need more people who, uh, less people who take the social media platform that they've been given and use it to not welcome anyone who doesn't, who disagrees with them. We need more one-on-one interaction and fellowship. We need more meals around the table with people who might disagree to be able to ask them, why? Why are you baptizing and teaching baptism in, in that way? Have you, have you not heard uh, of Jesus Christ and commanding us to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Uh, of which He heard about in that arena and began to go out and teach the way of God more accurately and saw the Holy Spirit come upon those who, who believed, repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ and were baptized to follow Him. So that's the type of welcoming that, that we're talking about. That's the type of welcoming that Paul has in mind when he's encouraging us regarding these secondary opinions and even some more serious opinions that we're not to just... Uh, disengage and denounce uh, online, but to, to have conversations, to have one-on-ones with individuals, and to welcome them in, in these areas. And, and it says to welcome those who are weak in the faith. This is why I said earlier, we're talking about this third category of beliefs here. We're not talking about these central beliefs that we hold fast to and Christians have held fast to for 2,000 years. We're talking about those who are weak in the faith, not those who have a different faith. We're talking about those who are welcomed by God because they've repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. Christian, just think, when you first put your faith in Jesus Christ, um, did you have a robust understanding of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement? Probably not. Uh, I didn't have that until 12 years ago or so. So, by God's grace, have we not all been welcomed as mere children of God? Just like Jesus, the, the disciples wanted to pull this non-welcoming attitude with children uh, when they were around Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Let the little children come to me. We need to have childlike faith in that. I'm thankful for those who have preceded us, who allowed us to um, spend time with the people of God, under the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, and have grown us up in our faith um, to care seriously about the Word of God and to have certain positions on that. And it seems as if for many of us, as we go along in the faith, our convictions get stronger and stronger. And those areas of Christian freedom that we held earlier in life, as we've gone on, we've actually been, become more restrictive in our life because we want our lives to honor and glorify the Lord more and more. And the area that they were specifically talking about in Paul's day and age is seen in verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now this is in regards to first century, century Christianity, um, those uh, who, uh, and, and this is an issue that came up in Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council when the gospel was going out to the ends of the earth 
and Gentiles were believing in Jesus Christ. And the question was, do these Gentile believers who don't have Jewish heritage and don't, didn't grow up in um, Judaism, do these Gentile believers have to obey all the laws of Judaism? The dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, the circumcision laws, of which they said in Acts chapter 15, no, they don't. They, they ought to repent of their sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and follow after Him. They don't have to obey those laws. That is true for Gentile Christians. It's made abundantly clear. But maybe the question here then is, well, what about the Jewish Christians, though? The Gentiles never practiced those Jewish things. And it was made clear that they didn't have to to be a part of the family of God. But do the Jews who come to faith in Jesus as their Messiah, do they have to keep doing those things that they've always done as a way of worship? Or are they free also to not have to do those things? And, and Paul um, came to this understanding that no, they're free um, to, to not have to practice those areas of the law. Peter came to a realization himself uh, when he had a dream and a vision at night when a sheet came down from heaven including all kinds of unclean animals according to Jewish law, and God said to him, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. To which the Lord said, rise and kill and eat. And Peter, you know, three times had to be told by Jesus, which was a pattern in Peter's life. Uh, three times was told, no, don't discriminate. Do not show partiality. And so when he finally realized that he, as a, as a good Jew, um, did not have to obey all of those Old Testament Jewish laws to live out his Christian faith, he entered into a Gentile uh, man's house, Cornelius, shared the gospel with him, and him and his whole household were saved, and they were baptized in that place. So Paul's come to this realization Peter's come to this realization. And there were other Jews who had come to this realization as well. And so they thought, Don't I, I can have some shrimp? Okay. Uh, I'm going to jump in. Bacon? Yeah? Okay. If the Lord has given us all of these things, if I can receive them with thanks from the Lord, then I'm going to eat them to the glory of God. But there were other Christians who said, You know what? I, I, I know that I'm free. But my conscience just does not allow, allow me to do that. And I want to be a little bit more restrictive in that. I've grown up this way. I don't feel pressure to do it this way. But this is the way I've been taught to worship the Lord. And I want to continue in that. And Paul is saying, uh, though they may be the weaker brother in regards to their conscience, the stronger brother is not to look down upon them. And the weaker brother is not to pass judgment on the stronger brother for their different positions as they are both aiming to honor and glorify God, though in different ways um, they're aiming to glorify the Lord. This is what he says in verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? For God has welcomed him. So we too are to welcome those whom God has welcomed. And how are we to do that inside the church? 
Paul gives us these two commands. Stop despising the weak and stop passing judgment on the strong. That's that first sub-point underneath that, that, that main, main point of welcoming those whom God has welcomed. How are we to do that, Christian? Um, we are to stop despising the weak and stop passing judgment on the strong. The tense of these commands are as if they are despising and that they are passing judgment and that they need to stop. And so this is a, a command not to not do something in the future. This is a command of stop doing what you're presently doing in this, in this life. And, and you know, you know how it goes, as I told you, as, as a pastor. Uh, I believe that there's Christian freedom uh, regarding drinking alcohol. I don't think the Bible forbids any Christian uh, from drinking alcohol. I think the Bible is absolutely clear that one ought not to be drunk because of alcohol. Uh, I can stand on that strongly uh, on biblical standards. But as a personal conviction, uh, our family has committed that we just don't drink alcohol. And so you've got a weak pastor in that area. And it's my hope that none of you would pass judgment and think, oh, come on, pastor. Come on, just live a little. Just enjoy a little, for that would not be welcoming to me. And it would be wrong of me to look out at some of our pastors, other pastors, and to look out at some of other members who feel the Christian freedom to have a drink of alcohol and to pass judgment on you uh, in that. And yet we know what, what it's like to be judged, and we also know what it's like to despise. And there's been areas of Christian freedom outside of alcohol, whether it be finances and how you use your finances, maybe how you use your free time, uh, maybe it is alcohol, maybe it's uh, how you raise your kids, maybe it's what schools you choose or don't choose, or this, that, or the other uh, there's a lot of areas of Christian freedom where, unfortunately, you've passed judgment on others or despised others uh, in the other way. Uh, and as James, the brother of Jesus, says in his letter to the New Testament church, to those who have used their mouth and their tongues for both cursing Man and blessing God, James says, my brothers, it shall not be. This is why Paul says, stop. Stop passing judgment and stop despising others. It's not welcoming. If God has welcomed those brothers and sisters into his family, we too ought to welcome them into our family. Of which Paul goes on to say, who are you? In verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. Why? For the Lord is able to make him stand. None of us are one another's master. God the Father, 
God the Son, the, the, God the Holy Spirit are our masters. We are the Lord's servant. It is to Him whom we will give an account one day. It is He who is able to make us stand on the convictions that His Spirit has given to us. And so we're not to judge others in these areas of Christian freedom. We're to be charitable, welcoming. Take one another aside if they have a different opinion than you and ask them why they have that. Uh, Because as we'll see in our second point, we hope that they are fully convinced in their own mind in accordance with God's Word of of why they're living that out. Let's show, let's give one another the benefit of the doubt uh, and let's grow together in that, believing that God may have some individuals hold one position and other individuals hold another position for a well-rounded view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, might we model that well. We're to welcome those whom God has welcomed, but we're also to welcome those for whom Christ has died and been raised from the dead. We're first and foremost to welcome those whom God has welcomed, but we're also secondly to welcome those for whom Christ died and rose from the dead. Look in verse 5. He introduces a second area of Christian freedom, a second non-essential, uh, an area that, we're, that the early church was to be charitable in with those who had different um, convictions and areas of conscience. In verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. This is in regards to potentially the Sabbath, um, potentially in regards to the Jewish festivals that we read about in the Old Testament, those festivals that popped up every year. And there were some Christians, uh, especially those Jewish Christians, who had come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and yet still, in accordance with their conscience, having probably grown up worshiping God through those festivals, worshiping God by not doing work on the Sabbath, wanted to continue in those practices, not believing that those practices earned them a place in God's family or um, salvation into heaven, but believing, having practiced their whole life worshiping God in that way, they wanted to continue in that. But there were also other Christians who having understood the teaching of Jesus who took the Passover and established a new meal for the new church, the Lord's Supper, said, I no longer have to celebrate through those festivals. (coughs) I I no longer have to even um, obey the Sabbath like I did in the past, for Christ is the new Sabbath. Christ is our ultimate rest. Um, Those two can worship the Lord together in the the church. And Paul says, he commands in the end of verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And this is going to be something that I think is important for us. For, For Christian, you ought not to do things in a certain way, just because your parents or because your church in the past always did them that way. 
therefore, that would not necessarily be because the Bible says that you should do them that way. For their conscience may have been convicted in a certain age and a certain time because of certain um, things in one way where yours might not. We're also not to be taking certain positions because of pressure from others in our day and age. Christian, each of us, in, in regards to these charitable, non-essential, secondary issues, ought to be fully convinced in our own mind what the Lord would have us do. How the Lord would have us spend our money. How the Lord would have us spend our time. How the Lord would uh, have us enjoy or not enjoy things like alcohol or certain foods or, or watching certain shows or not watching certain shows. This, that, or the other. Each of you should be fully convinced. Now, if you're reasoning you tell me you are living in this way of Christian freedom because this is the way uh, that it's always been done, but you haven't felt the Holy Spirit or, or seen scriptural precedent for that, I would encourage you to seek scriptural precedent for that. Seek the Holy Spirit's conviction on your own life of how you're to live that out. Um, and, and, and to not feel pressure from your pastors or from other members to live in that way. Like I told you, uh, your pastor and your pastor's family have certain strong convictions for our family that we don't ever want to put on anybody else's family, uh, specifically uh, a conviction to raise our kids, uh, educate our kids in our home. That is a conviction that we have, and it's one that probably puts us in the weak of faith, um, but that is our conviction. It's not you ought not to feel any pressure because one of your pastors does it this way because just give it a few years and one of your other pastors may do it differently. And plenty of our other church members do it differently. And might it be that the Lord would have us as a church in these areas of Christian freedom be diverse and be charitable so that we have a well-rounded um, Christ-like body uh, of Christ. Uh, that have different opportunities for evangelism, different opportunities for those things. Yet we ought to be fully convinced in our own mind. Paul will bring this idea up later in the very end of chapter 14, verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Don't do something just because others do it or you feel pressure from someone to do it. Do something because God's Word has led you in a certain direction. God's Spirit it has affirmed those decisions. And you're doing so in faith to honor and glorify God. This is what Paul explains in verse 6. The one who observes the day, that is the Sabbath or the Jewish festivals, he observes it in honor of the Lord. And no different. The one who eats, he goes back to that first example, the one who eats is eating those things in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains is also abstaining in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. See that you can hold these two different positions in these non-essential, secondary 
areas of charitable beliefs and both honor the Lord. And, and to be able to display to the world that there are more than one way to honor God. And that even when we disagree in these areas or have certain differences of opinions of convictions, we can charitably love and welcome one another. What a testimony to the church or to the world around us if we as a church would do that well. Paul says in, in verse 7, he, he gives us the reason. When you see the word for there, he's oftentimes showing us the reason why this is true. For none of us lives to himself. We're, we're living for God, we're living to God. And none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. This passage is teaching us, if you're taking notes again, this sub-point here, the way that we're to welcome those for whom Jesus has died and risen from the dead is that we ought to be fully convinced individually in how we honor the Lord. If you want to be one who welcomes others well, you first need to be fully convinced in your own mind how you are to honor the Lord and, and give someone the benefit of the doubt that they too have become fully convinced in how they are to honor the Lord. And then listen to one another in explaining how they feel fully convinced in that way. For Paul goes on and says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now, there's so much more that we could uh, speak about here. Let me just give you some verse references that you might spend time reading this week. 1 Corinthians 10, 23-31. through 31. It ends with that great reminder, uh, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all for the glory of God. Or 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 5. Both of those passages being great examples of what it means to um, live in such a way that we are aiming to honor the Lord and welcoming those whom God has welcomed and welcoming those for whom Christ has died and been raised for the dead. Christian, imagine you standing before God and Jesus Christ on the throne and God and Jesus asking you why you did not welcome someone for whom God had welcomed and for whom Jesus had died and raised from the dead. <laughs> Imagine that situation playing out and God saying, why didn't you welcome this person? Well, you know, they, they didn't agree with me on this position that I had and, you know, they didn't affirm this or that or the other of this. And God says, but didn't I welcome them? Yeah, but God, you know, I was trying to be pure. I was trying to, you know, really, you know, be steadfast. I was trying to be a Christ follower and shine, shine light. And Jesus says, did I not die? And was I not raised for that person as well? It's not going to be a, a good place for you to be making that argument with the Lord. Let us hold fast to those central 
um, truths of the gospel and salvation. Let us even identify those confessional beliefs we have and hold fast to them in love. For I was encouraged by a testimony of one of our members even this very morning who spent time overseas living abroad who was full of a church with Presbyterians and Methodists and Anglicans and even week to week uh, were having a Baptist Sunday worship service, an Anglican worship service, a Presbyterian worship service. For when you're the minority in a country full of Muslims or Hindus uh, or Buddhists, you'll do anything and everything to gather with any Christian who's been welcomed by God, with any other Christian who has believed that Jesus has died and rose from the dead. Might we too model that well? But then lastly, uh, we ought to welcome those who bear the name brother. Paul has been talking in the terms of weak and strong up to this point, but then he asks in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? That word brother is sibling. Brother or sister. Why, Christian? Are you looking down upon? Why are you despising them? Why are you passing judgment on your brother or sister? Same words as in verse 3 that he commanded us to stop doing that. Now he's asking the question, why? Why are you doing that? Has not God the Father welcomed them into His family, adopted them into His family as His children. Did we not just sing, church, uh, that all who believe in Him, He gave them the right to become children of God? Why are we despising? Why are we passing judgment on those for whom Christ died? Why are we despising and passing judgment on those whom we also call brother or sister? I would say again with James, my brother and sister, it shall not be. And Paul roots it um, in this, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He does not say we'll all stand before the great white judgment throne where sin will be judged. Paul is speaking to Christians here. And he says, we'll stand before the judgment seat of God, the bema seat of God, where we will be judged according to our deeds in the faith, where we will be judged uh, according to our stewardship of the gospel and our stewardship with the time that we've been given. It will be judged according to the good and the bad that we've done having come to believe in Jesus Christ. This is the judgment seat where, where it's believed that we'll receive crowns for our faithfulness, where we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or we hope to hear those words of Jesus upon our lives. And then we'll turn back around and give those crowns back to the Lord Jesus as an act of worship to Him. We're all going to stand. Our sins have been paid for. Amen? Christ Jesus died and rose from the dead. But we will stand accountable to God, Christian, for how we lived this life. For what words we spoke. For what deeds we did or didn't do. For what we used, what we watched with our eyes, what we listened to with our ears. The way we treated one another. 
in the church and outside the church. We will give an account. And Paul brings that up. We will stand before that judgment seat of God. For it is written, and here he quotes from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, and I'll read it from Isaiah, having already read Paul's quote of it here. Isaiah 45, first in verse 22, he says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself, God says, I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue swear allegiance. Christian, this is true of us, that we will stand before the judgment seat of God. And it is our desire to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You welcomed others into the body of Christ for those who had been welcomed by God and Christ, for those um, who bear the name brother, for those who Jesus died and rose from the dead. And Paul ends with this, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So how are we to welcome those who bear the name of brother? We Last point, sub-point, we need to be prepared to stand before and give an account to God. Christian, imagine if you were to die today or Christ were to return. You were to stand accountable to Him, to stand before Him at the judgment seat of God. Would He say, well done, good and faithful servant? Would you receive that crown of righteousness for the way that you handled the gospel and the time and the years and the health and the finances and the uh, opportunities that you were given? Would you receive the the crown of joy, the crown of uh, joy remembering those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ because of your evangelism, because of your discipleship, because of your welcoming those whom God has welcomed. I pray that when we're at that moment in that great scene standing before God, um, and, and each of us look out and we see other members who were members for a time here at the Fields Church, and we see one another being judged, that having welcomed one another and spurred one another on, to live in this way, we would watch one another um, be spoken over by Jesus Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. We ought to aim to live in that way right here, right now, knowing that we will stand before the Lord. And one of the ways that we're going to practice this practically this morning is by taking the Lord's Supper. And we're going to stand up, Christian, and we're going to walk through the aisles, and we're going to break of bread that is a reminder of Christ's body that was killed for us. And we're going to take a cup of juice that's a reminder of Christ's blood that was shed for us. And we're going to remember Christ's death and His burial, but we're also going to remember His resurrection. But as we do so, we're also going to be standing in line and we're going to be singing 
of our foundation as a church in Jesus Christ. And we're going to be looking around at one another and essentially saying, you're welcome at this table. We may disagree and have differences of opinions on this, that, or the other in these secondary areas, but in this moment, we're going to show our charity towards one another and welcoming one another at this table. And so if you're one of our members here in right standing with the Lord and with one another, or if you're a guest with us and you're a Christian who's repented of your sins and followed Christ in baptism, uh, we want to welcome you as well to remember Christ's death and His, and his resurrection through uh, this new supper, this new meal that Christ has commanded us to partake in. But if you're here and, and you're not a Christian, uh, and in fact, this kind of definition of the church and followers of Christ, you just don't see out in the world. You haven't seen Christians act in this way. You've seen them actually be more divisive, more disagreeable. Um, I just want to say I'm sorry. Uh, on behalf of those who bear the name of Christ, I'm sorry. I've done that poorly. And there's been times where us as a church have probably done that poorly. Uh, some of these church members have probably done that poorly. And, and for our own sins, we say we're sorry. And for those who have bore the name of Christ, we're sorry. But might you hear what we believe we ought to be living out? And I pray that that's attractive to you. I pray that you see a group of people here who are not perfect, but are aiming to be faithful in these areas so that we bear the name of Christ well in our city, on our streets, in our workplaces, in our homes, to our families. And I pray that you have heard uh, the gospel, that Jesus died and rose from the dead for you and for me. For he died and rose from the dead for all who repent and believe. And for those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible is abundantly clear that their sins are forgiven, they've been washed white as snow, and they too will be saved. And my encouragement to you is to believe this morning, to repent of your sins and believe on Jesus Christ and be welcomed into the family of God today. And we as a local church welcome you into this church to grow with us, to know Christ more and to make Christ known more. Would you pray with me as we prepare for the Lord's Supper? Father, I, I pray that you would help us in this task, that we as a church would be a welcoming church, uh, a welcoming church in regards to uh, those things that are less clear, those areas of Christian freedom, those areas of conviction and conscience, that we would hold fast to the central core historic truths of Christianity, that we would even hold fast to those distinctives that we have set aside as a church to declare to the world who we believe you to be and who we as a church believe we are. But Lord, may we hold more loosely those things that are less clear in your word and those things that are a matter of conscience. And may we be a charitable church. And may we be a welcoming church. For how could we not welcome those for whom God is welcome? 
for whom Christ has died and risen from the dead, for whom bear the name of brother and sister in Christ. Help us to do that well. Help us to stop despising, stop passing judgment, and welcome one another today, especially as we look to Christ who made all of this possible this morning through the Lord's Supper. May we remember Christ first and foremost and hold fast to Him and welcome one another. Encourage one another to hold fast to Christ. God, I pray that if there's someone here who's yet to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, to be saved by grace through faith, I pray that in this moment as we worship through eating and drinking, that they in their seat might repent of their sins and believe in Jesus and be welcomed into the family of God. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.